following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If you don't have your finger already there in Psalm 80, turn back to Psalm 80 or open that up. It's on page 491 of your, uh, the Bible right in front of you in the, in the seats, if you're not already there. Um, so I have a little confession to make. I, I grew up, uh, I suppose it's a confession, I, I grew up in uh, Boulder, Colorado. So I don't know if any of you know much about Boulder, Colorado, but it's, it's an interesting place. Um, uh, so Pastor Stacy's always trying to ask me, hey, what, what kind of food, you know, what's your hometown known for? And the only thing I can think of is, well, now we have marijuana legal and there's a lot of craft breweries, so I guess we kind of just get drugs and alcohol. Stacy's, Stacy's always talking about in Chicago, there's this pizza or this, this, there's this and that, and I don't really know what we're known for in Boulder. But uh, one of the things we actually are known for, uh, not related to food-wise, but it's, it's a whole, uh, it's a very spiritual place. Uh, not many people are Christian, but it's a very spiritual place. And um, so it's interesting. That I was down back in my, my hometown area a couple weeks ago, and, uh, I guess about a month or so ago. And as I was driving to a couple of my appointments and meetings, you know, we drive right by the, the Buddhist temple in uh, Longmont, Colorado. It's, not, it's in Boulder County. It's not quite in Boulder City proper. But at any rate, there's, it's interesting because I, I don't think there's too many places in the country that have uh, Buddhist temples. Interestingly enough, nobody's ever there Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, but it's always on Sunday that somebody's there. So I guess they're kind of adapting that to, to a Christian um, experience of going to church on Sunday. So at any rate... One of the reasons I want to tell you about, about that is that one of the, the characters that comes around to Boulder, Colorado, because of the university and because there's an interest in spiritualism, is, is the Dalai Lama. He is uh, the head of the Tibetan Buddhist branch of Buddhism throughout the world. Uh, but the, one of the interesting things about uh, the Dalai Lama is he's actually in exile. I don't know if you knew that, but his home country is in uh, Tibet, which is part of China, and uh, China has basically declared him to be a persona non grata and has kicked him out of the country and not allowed him to return to China. So it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, he's cut off from his homeland. There's, there's many people who are adherents to his, his brand of uh, Buddhism um, outside of, of China and Tibet there. But, but there's some significant temples and uh, just a significant place in, in the heart of Buddhism for, for uh, that, the land of Tibet. So if you will, like he's, he's cut off from that. It doesn't mean he can't practice or can't do what he wants to do uh, and, and guide his adherents uh, through, you know, whatever he says and where he speaks, but, um, but he is cut off from his homeland. And I think that's a concept that we're not really that familiar with, uh, the concept of exile. Not many of us have ever experienced the being actually forced out, to, made to leave our country and our homeland um, and be away from what we call home and what we, where we want to be. But he is uh, one of the, the most, probably most significant exiles in this, in this world right now. There's uh, obviously refugees, um, et cetera, but that's a slightly different category. So I, I actually want to talk to you about the, the concept of exile today. I think we're somewhat familiar with it, but I was hoping that that, would, that kind of illustration would give you a little understanding of, you know, there, there actually are people that are in exile. They've been cut off from their homeland and, and sent away um, and have no, no way to come back. Uh, but the psalm we read, again, that's on page 491, is Psalm 80. 
This, uh, many people will consider this to be a psalm of exile. So again, when we're looking at the book of Psalms here in, in the Bible, we're looking at the, the hymn book or the song book for the nation of Israel. These songs that were collected by a bunch of different people, uh, David, uh, Moses has one, a lot of different songwriters composing songs that this nation would sing at different points in their history and at different uh, experiences that they had to as they cry out to God and, and pray and, and talk to Him. So, so this is one of their songs. This is a song that most people believe was one of their exilic psalms. So, so this is a song that they would have sung in exile. They're cut off from their homeland. They're away from the promised land. They're away from Jerusalem. They're away from the temple. And so this is one of the songs that they would have sung in that situation. So God's people have been displaced and they've been cut off. And this is one of the things, one of the songs that they would sing and, and pray to express their longing for God to work on their behalf. So let's take a look real quick at, at the psalm again. We, we read it earlier. I want to just point out a few of the, the, the main features of this psalm as we try to work our way from not only just understanding what the psalmist is saying, but then how can we hear this well and then obey it and live in light of this. So first of all, notice how the psalmist, the, the songwriter here, uh, addresses God. He says here that, give ear or listen to us. He says in verses 4 and verses 7, he says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Uh, he calls, he calls uh, God first there, in, uh, backing up a little bit. He calls him the shepherd in, in verse 1. He, this is the God who, who leads his people, who feeds his people, who directs and cares for them. So then uh, look again at verses 4 and 7. God of hosts is what he calls God. Uh, another translation is God Almighty, or uh, even uh, an extrapolation. Another translation would be God the Invincible Warrior. So we're talking about recognizing God as the God who has all forces, all angels, whatever, at his disposal and could be invincible if he wanted to. So these people are crying out to him on that basis. God, you have every all power at your right hand. You are the one who protects and defends and liberates your people. So come, listen to us, answer our prayer. In verses 8 through the end, we see the analogy of the relationship between Israel and, and God is depicted as the, the vine. And God is the, the gardener or the farmer, if you will. He's the one who, who tends and cares for his people like a farmer would tend for and care for the vine and, and cause it to be fruitful, to cause it to grow and to flourish. Now notice here what the psalmist asks of his God. I started in on that a little earlier, but he says, Give ear, O shepherd. Listen to us. Hear us. He says, Shine forth. Respond to us. Don't ignore us. He says, Save us. A common refrain here, we'll talk more about it in a minute, is this refrain, restore us, O God, to yourself. He says, how long will you be angry with your people? Turn again, return to us. Look down and see, watch over this vine, watch over us. Let your hand rest on us, let your hand be upon this man, this, this person that you've established to guide us. 
So this is, this is what the psalmist is praying. He's saying, God, you've, you've put us in this situation where we've been cut off from our homeland. We've been cut off from the temple. We've been cut off from, from Jerusalem. And we're praying, God, bring us back to that. Restore us to yourself. The main refor- refrain or the chorus of this book, if you look at verses 3 and verses 7 and then verse 19 at the end, he's saying, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Notice that he's, as the psalmist is praying this and asking this, pleading with God to, to restore them, he's saying, we want you to restore us. We want there to be salvation and deliverance for us. We want to be delivered from the situation. But more than anything, he wants God to shine again, God's face to shine again on them. It, and the, the idea behind that is that, that God would show his favor to his people again, that God would allow his people to again be in his presence, to experience his face and be with him. So the main threat here is not necessarily uh, the fact that, that they're cut off and they're away in this different land like, like uh, the Dalai Lama who can't go back to his homeland. The main issue here is that they're cut off from the presence of God because they're not back there in the promised land. See, for, for, the, for Israel, that was the best part. That was the key part of, of who they were as a nation. God had established them as the way for God to be known at that time. And so everything was focused on the promised land. Everything was focused on the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God's presence could be experienced. And so for them to be in exile was to be cut off not necessarily just from their homeland, but to cut off, be cut off from God's presence. So they, they want deliverance, they want salvation, but it's not primarily in terms of physical, bring us back to Israel. It is that, but it's primarily they want restoration to God's presence, to be back and able to access God the way he, he brought about at that point. So look at the last part of this, this psalm here in verses 8 through the end. What the psalmist is going to do is he's going to take the history of Israel and he's going to put that into the analogy of a vine, as I mentioned earlier, and talk about how God had worked in the past and what God had done and the relationship that there had been established, that God himself had established between Israel and this people and, and God by using the analogy of a vine, and, and showing, God, this is what you've done in the past. So act in light of that. Look at verses 8 through 9. We see that God takes that vine, that he transplants that vine, and then he establishes it. So we're going back to Israelites' history, the, the books of Exodus, where God brought a people out from, Israel, from Egypt and established them there in Israel. He's talking about it as if it were a vine, but he established it. He transplants it. Then in verses 10 to 11, the vine flourishes. It does well. It grows. It, uh, you see that he refers to the fact that it's re- flourishing from the sea to the river. And that's most likely a, a reference to the Mediterranean on the one hand and then all the way to the Euphrates on the other hand. So we're talking about basically the whole known world for these people is being covered and um, if you will, blessed by this vine. It's influencing and causing life and goodness. It's flourishing over the whole known world. 
And yet then because of their sin, because of their disobedience, in verses 12 to 16, we see the vineyard is broken. The vine is, is violated. So these animal, wild animals are running through. Running, the walls have been broken. It's torn down. Anybody who wants can come and pick the fruit. It's to languish here in this position. So the main implication of the psalmist's words here are, God, why did you do this? Why have you done all this work to establish us as this beautiful vine that was flourishing so much and then let us go to this, go to ruin like this? God, answer us. Come back. Restore us to yourself that we might flourish again. Look at verses 15 and 17 here. 15, it says, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself, have re- in, starting in verse 14 there, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the, and the son for whom you have made strong for yourself. Here the son is another way to talk about the branch. So this is also highlighting for us the unique relationship that existed between God and his people Israel at that time. So not only is it a vine um, where God is the, the farmer, the, the gardener who tends it and carefully works it, and there's that close relationship, but also God, the psalmist is, is envisioning this relationship as a father to a son where there's that closeness. The son uh, could also, uh, in this case, designate the, uh, the king of the nation who would represent them and uh, stand in their place. So he's using these terms uh, as a son, uh, the branch, all of these speaking of Israel. Then in verse 17, he talks about the, um, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. So again, he's, He's using this analogy of the branch, but then calling it a son. So there's this close relationship between God and his people. We also see that the king would have taken this place too. So the king is representative of Israel as the nation. And there's that close relationship between God and the king of Israel, whom he calls his son. Now that language is from from 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promises to David that David's son is going to sit on the throne and that God is going to have a unique relationship to that son. So all of these things are coming together. And really what what the psalmist is doing here is he's talking about Israel as a nation by referring to it as a branch, as the son in a close relationship, as the king. And what he's doing is he's saying, God, remember this close relationship that we have. Remember what you've done in the past and restore us to yourself. Again, as I've said earlier, their, their, their being in the land was a way for them to access God and know God. So they're praying here. This psalmist is all about the people praying and begging God to restore himself to his people so that they can experience his presence. In a word, they're praying that they would flourish again, just like this vine had done previously. Notice the... Just the the emotion in this psalm. The the biggest threat for these people is the threat that they would be cut off from God, that they might not be able to be with Him. So note, if you will, the the theological axiom that is underlying this, this psalm here, that to be in the presence of God is to flourish. 
So to be in the presence of God is to flourish. This is how God designed humanity to begin with. So if you go back all the way to the very beginning of the Bible, you see that God intended for us to be in this close relationship with him. God even designed work. Work was not originally hard or evil. God designed that work for us to have a means by which we could fellowship with him. We'd be tending the plants that he made or whatever it was that he allowed us to do and called us into. We, that was a vehicle for us to just experience God's presence. But God wanted this for us at the very beginning. And yet sin entered the world because mankind wanted to rebel against him and do their own thing. And the psalmist knows this as he's praying this prayer. He knows that his greatest good, he knows that in order to flourish, he needs to be in the presence of God. So that's the, that's the gist of this song. The people of Israel would be praying this song together, praying that God would restore them to himself and allow them to know him and, and have access to his presence. So then how do we read this as, as Christians or people on this side of of Israel's history and this side of, of Jesus having come and gone to the cross for us. Well, let me suggest a couple ways that we can look at this. There's actually a lot of ways that we as Christians and, and we see even um, Jesus entering into this. So, so let me take us through a little bit of how we see that. First of all, let's remember that as an Israelite, Jesus would have prayed this prayer and Jesus would have sung this song with his people. So yes, when Jesus came around at the beginning of uh, you know zero, um, two thousand years ago or so, you know the, the the people were back in the land. They'd been somewhat restored from exile, but they they had they didn't have the freedom to do everything they wanted. They were still in control, uh, being being controlled and somewhat oppressed by the Romans. So, so I could see the the people of Israel at this day that in his day, Jesus's day, still praying this prayer, saying, "God, restore us to yourself." Let us have even this, this fuller and greater sense of who you are to be able to know you better. Yet, in another way, what we see that we see this, this psalm talking about the branch. We see him talking about the son, the son of man. And these are terms that we're familiar with from the New Testament because uh, let me reference uh, John chapter 15. When Jesus comes back, comes and he began, one of the things he's teaching his disciples, he says in John 15 that he is the true vine and the true branch. So one of the things we see that happening is, is Jesus is not necessarily simply telling us, uh, giving us an analogy for how we understand how we are to relate to him. Jesus is actually making a bold statement here. Well, he's basically saying, I am Israel. Do you get that? He's not just saying, this is how we relate, this is how we are closely related, but he's saying, I am Israel. Israel failed in the past to live up to my standards of righteousness, to fully please God and, and to fully be that person, that, uh, that, that nation that would bring people to God, that would stand as a beacon for anybody who is seeking truth, anybody who wants to know God, come here and see, and we're going to display to you the goodness of this God. Israel failed in that. So when Jesus comes here in John 15, he's saying, I am Israel. I'm taking their place. I'm walking into their shoes. He is that son. He's that king. He's that branch. So the nation now is embodied, uh, literally and spiritually, in Jesus' person. So he steps up. The son that the psalmist talks about has been revealed. 
the king, the branch, is Jesus himself, the son of man. That's a, a common way that Jesus designates himself in the New Testament, uh, showing his identification with humanity and, and then his taking the place and being part of, of that nation. So Jesus not only prays this prayer as a member of the nation, but then he becomes that very branch, that very son, the, the king that is spoken of there in that psalm. Jesus then becomes the instrument that God will use to answer the prayer of his people. But listen to this, and this is probably, probably the most significant for us today, but remember that Jesus, as now the new Israel, the true Israel, he himself experiences removal from God's presence on the cross. This gives this psalm another level of meaning in that, that Jesus, when he went to the cross and was killed in our place, when a, the worst part, yes, the, the actual physical suffering that he endured was, was horrendous and, and just unbelievable, but the worst part from, for Jesus was that he was separated from the Father. So for some short time there, God forsook his son. He turned his back on his son and he cut off his son from his presence. So if you will, Jesus experienced this exile. Jesus is this son, this king, this branch that the psalmist is talking about and he does experience not a restoration but a complete exile from God's presence. Not for the disobedience of Israel only, but for the, the disobedience of all humanity that we might never experience such an exile. So get this, God answers the prayer of his people in this psalm. Do you see how he's answering this in Jesus? He's saying, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to answer your prayer, but I'm not going to deliver you from exile. I'm going to deliver you through exile. Do you see this? This is good news for us. In this situation, in his own exile, so we see that, Jesus, sorry, let me back up. Jesus would have prayed this as a member of the nation. Jesus also enters into this by becoming that branch, that king, that son. But then as Jesus is experiencing his own exile, his own being cut off from the Father, we could probably envision these the words of this song on his lips saying, God, restore me to yourself. Because Jesus, of all people, knows that this is to flourish. This is what life is about, that we would live it in the presence of God. And he was separated and cut off. But this is why this is so good. This is such good news for us. is because Jesus was cut off. He experienced this exile fully and completely. He was cut off from God so that God's people would never have to be. If Jesus is the true vine, the new Israel, what he's telling us in John 15 is that now the people of God are determined not by ethnicity or geography, but by identification with himself. And what he's also saying is that you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to a certain place to experience God and to know his presence and fellowship with him. All you have to do is know Jesus. And you can be right there. You can enjoy God's presence. You have access to his presence. Remember our theological axiom that we've talked about here that's underpinning this psalm that to be in the presence of God is to flourish. 
So what Jesus has accomplished by experiencing exile on our behalf is to secure for us freedom forever from the threat of ever being exiled. Jesus has experienced this exile and was truly cut off from God's presence, but he defeated this exile. He was raised again. He was restored to the presence of God, even God's right hand. So listen to this. Mark this. God has answered the prayer of this psalm by taking his son, that branch, through that exile so that we might never have to experience that. So let's talk a little bit about how we enter into this, not only as we see as a Christian how we would read this. We, we would be reading this psalm as, as a prayer of restoration, but, but also on this side of things, a prayer of, of thanksgiving, knowing that God, God did restore his people to himself, and now we can enter into that. But some of you may also be thinking, you know, how do I, uh, how do I get in on this? And I think the first thing to understand is that, that while Jesus has experienced exile, so nobody has to experience that exile, that, that being cut off from God, there is a sense in which this is not automatically applicable to everybody. We have to understand, first of all, how it is that we deserve this exile. We know that all of us should have been cut off from God's presence to fall short of God's glory, to not live up to his standards means that we, we don't deserve to be in God's presence. We deserve to be cut off forever and, and separated from him and never to experience what we were originally created and meant to experience, life in his presence. So we don't automatically all get in on this deal unless we understand uh, how much we deserve to be exiled from God. And that if we understand what Jesus has done and taken our place, taken uh, the punishment that we deserved, then we can place our trust in Jesus, say, Jesus, you are my only hope that I will ever know God and fellowship with him. So then some of us, uh, most of us, I, I trust, have entered into this by, by placing our trust and believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Um, we still have this sense of, yeah, but I, I still mess up all the time. But here again, th that's why this is such good news for you because Jesus, experiencing this exile to an infinite degree, has paid for all of your sins. So it's not just the things that happened a few years ago. It's the things that happened a few minutes ago. It's the things that you will do to this afternoon. It's the things that, that will happen, that you, the choices that you will make in, in a month or a year. All of these have been covered. All of these have been put on Jesus that we might be free and that we might not have to face that exile. We might not have to live apart from the presence of God. So whatever it is, think about it right now. All of us have things in our life uh, that, that are challenging to us that are we continually struggle with we want to do our own thing we want to choose that over doing what is right and following God but brothers and sisters I have good news for you today embrace this truth you don't have to be separated from God's presence because of that think about it what is it put it bring it to your mind what is it that that, that often comes to your mind of man I struggle with this or I keep doing this and I wish I didn't don't be defined by that Jesus has taken that. He's taken the punishment for that. He's taken your exile, the exile that you deserved, that you never have to be cut off from God. That thing that you think of, 
Don't look at that. Look at your Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for that sin. So I guess I, what I, my, my challenge to us, to me, really, today, is that as we look at a new year, we, we can look back at 2015 and say, these are the areas that I, I've struggled, these are the things that I've done wrong, um, and that can be a real challenge to us. But, but let's em, embrace, first of all, what Jesus has done for us. So we, we have complete freedom in that. We want to live worthy of the gospel. We don't want to keep disobeying. Uh, we're not talking about cheap, oh yeah, we went to church, got to worry, you know, I, I, I confess that, now I don't have to worry about it, I can go live my life the way I want. No, we want to continually live in light of the gospel and, and, and do that and obey the Lord. But we also, we've got to take to the bank the, the, the promise to us from, from Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So think about what, what do you want to do this year? First of all, we need to believe that our greatest good, that if we want to flourish this year, that we need to live this year in God's presence. So think about it. what does that mean? If you, think, if you were to think about, like if I had asked you yesterday, you know, what are your hopes and goals for 2016? What, how do you hope to flourish, to become the person you're supposed to be, to meet your potential and to live up to that and to, to grow this year? What, what things do you see on, the, on your radar? Sometimes we see a job promotion or success. Sometimes we see a, a pay raise or you know, finally be able to, being able to buy this thing or that and, or finally moving out from your parents' house or, or finally going to college, being able to be out on your own and make your own decisions or getting to a particular stage in a relationship that will make you feel secure um, so you can really flourish, really grow. These, all these things, I mean, you know, they're great. And I hope many of these things happen to you. But I, what I'm here to tell you is if we understand this psalm and then we understand how Jesus has entered into that and how we read this, we understand that our greatest need is to be living in the presence of God. If we're going to flourish this year in 2016, we're going to flourish because we're living in the presence of God. We're enjoying Him. So what are we going to do to make that happen? I think of some, some key tools for us. Those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are, are united with Him, and we now have the Holy Spirit that it talks about in the New Testament. The, the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence that, that indwells us, that lives within us, and helps us, and encourages us, and challenges us. But we have the Spirit. That's one of the greatest tools that we have. So we can listen to the Spirit. We can follow the Spirit's promptings. Um, the Spirit will use the Word to challenge us, convict us, and encourage us. So that's one of the other tools we have. We have prayer. We can talk to God. Um, often that's, it can be a very formal thing or it can be a very informal thing. We don't have a certain time to, to speak on just what does it mean to pray, but, but that's just a way we can talk to God and know God. And one thing that we often, a fourth thing that we often over, overlook and neglect is we have each other. God has given us the people around us to help us choose to serve and live for Jesus, to obey Him, to love Him, and to enjoy and live life in His, in His presence. So, so what are we going to do to take advantage of these tools this year? Maybe all of us need to get up a few minutes earlier so that we can read the Word and pray some. Uh, this is something I, I keep struggling with, coming back and back, back to. I, I need to get up earlier and just have some time when the kids are not awake. Because <laughs> once the kids wake up, it's chaos. Or maybe we need to turn the television off for 30 minutes. 
so we can talk with God, or maybe turn, stop a, a video game or you know, a show that we want to watch. Maybe we should just take a time out on that until we have some time to spend with God. Maybe we should set aside time before or after homework or housework so that uh, we can memorize a verse from the Bible here, think about it, and, uh, and then even share it with someone else that, that we know in our community group or, or here in, in the body. Maybe it means putting one less thing or lots less things on the calendar so that you have time to be quiet, to have a little bit of space. At the end of the day, we have to believe that this is our greatest good, that we will flourish only if we're living in the presence of God. And so we have to believe that it's better than sleeping. It's better than that TV show. It's better than a video game, or it's better than checking this thing off your to-do list. And look, I'm, I'm talking to myself here too, because as I look at 2016, I, I hope it's, I hope there are some, some things that are different in 2016 than 2015. So we start by believing that this is true, and then we say, yeah, I can't just, I can't just listen to this and, and just walk away. I have to, I have to come up with a plan. I have to come up with an idea. How am I going to obey this truth? So what are you going to do today? What are you going to do this week, this month, this year? What plans are you going to make so that you can actually obey this truth? By God's grace, what are you going to change this year? What are you going to do differently? How will you cultivate time in God's presence? by the power that God gives you. Remember, if there's any desire in you, if you find yourself saying, hey, I, I want to read the Bible. Hey, I want to pray. I want to spend time with God's people. Like, that's not of you. That's the Holy Spirit. So you don't get any credit for it. <laughs> it's God. It's God working in you. You can praise God for him, and you can just look at that and say, hey, thank you, God, for working uh, and, and doing that. Take advantage of that. As I close, I'd like to read Romans chapter 8. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. The end of chapter 8. I'm going to read 31 through the end. But just listen. Our, our great Savior, Jesus, has experienced exile. He has taken our punishment. He's been cut off from the presence of God so that we would never have to. And this, then, is what we say in response. Paul, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us... Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's the, theo if I can insert this, that's the theological category we're talking about, justification, where because of what Jesus has done, experiencing exile on our behalf, that we, as we are united with Christ, we are justified, we are declared not only to not be not guilty, but we are declared to be righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let's skip down to 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what our God has done for us. He has answered the prayer of Psalm 80 by sending His Son, not rescuing Him from exile, but sending Him through exile in our place that we might never face the possibility that we would be cut off from God's presence. So this is our good news that we celebrate and rejoice in. That's why we're here. So what I'm, I'm just begging with you, I'm begging with my own heart, enjoy this, embrace this this year. Because to truly flourish this year, you will need to spend time in God's presence. Let's pray. And as, a, as we pray, I'm going to ask the men to come forward and uh, stand here at the front for our time of communion together. So men, come while we pray. God, we just thank you for all that you've accomplished for us in your son, what your son has done for us so graciously in, in taking the exile that we deserved. God, we have no other way to know you apart from your son. And so we rejoice in what you've done, and we rejoice in being able to remember together as brothers and sisters that you've united in your son together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, sit down, please. This is uh, something that we do uh, regularly as a, as a church, as a body. We, we gather together to remember Christ's suffering, his death on the cross for us, um, and then his, uh, his death, burial, and then his resurrection to new life. Uh, which has secured all these benefits, these, this good news that, that we've even been talking about today. So we've already talked much about what he suffered on the cross and taking our exile. We've discussed the fact that Jesus was cut off from the presence of God, that we might never have to experience being cut off from God's presence. So as we approach this communion table, we're here to simply remember what Jesus has done for us, to remember and to rejoice. So as we do this, I would extend an invitation to partake in this to uh, anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've publicly uh, confessed your, your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to, to know God, then please participate with us. Uh, if you haven't, if you don't know what that's about, then I would ask you just to go ahead and pass it by and uh, not partake with us. Uh, this is for those of us who believe in Jesus it's a special time for us just to remember and to be thankful. We're also told in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul outlines some of the, the ways that, that that church can celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're told not to, to eat unworthily. And let me just give you a couple thought, two real quick thoughts on that. First of all, not one single person in here is worthy to eat of this table because there's nothing that we could have done that would grant us access to God, that would merit any kind of favor with Him. So when we think of that, don't think that, oh, well, you know, there's this thing in my life, and remember what Christ has done for us. No one is worthy except for what Christ has done. There's a period in my life when I was struggling with some sins, and, you know, I just I always struggled with coming to communion, and I finally realized this is God's grace to me. He's saying, partake of this. Because you're not worthy. You're not good enough to, to earn any favor with God. So we don't partake of this as Christians 
because we've lived a life of perfection this week. Our Savior Jesus Christ has lived a life of perfection. So we rejoice in that. We want to walk worthy of the gospel. We're not talking about cheap grace, but our Savior was perfect because we could never be. Second of all, often the, the concept of partaking of this and enjoying this worthily is often becomes this simple uh, introspective time where we just think about ourselves. Um, and I think if God brings something to mind, yeah, uh, repent of it, confess it right away. But, but that's the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished for us is that when sin happens instantly, we can say, God, that's wrong. I confess that. And you're right back in fellowship with God. That's the way it was designed. So enjoy that. And also know that we do this just as Psalm 80 was sung and, and prayed together as a nation, as a community, as the people of God. We do this together. It's not just about me. It's not just about my sins. Look around. Really, look around. Like this, These are the people that God has brought into our lives together. He's brought us together to enjoy together the presence of God as a community. So... We rejoice not only in what Jesus has accomplished for us personally, but we rejoice in what God has accomplished for us corporately as a body. So, man, I'd like to ask you to stand. And, uh, Ed, if you would, would you just pray as we, we take this bread and uh, distribute it and then partake together? So, Ed, would you pray?